table. He stood up. His face was turning blue. His eyes were bulging. He was gasping for air because a piece of steak had lodged in his throat, and he couldn't breathe. The man that's telling this story said, I, I glanced around the room hoping someone would rush to him to apply the Heimlich maneuver, but everybody froze helpless. I pushed my chair back. I ran to his side. I wrapped my arms around his stomach. I squeezed. The meat dislodged from his throat, and I could hear that man welcome in the sound of fresh air as he took a deep breath. He said, later, several people came by and appreci expressed appreciation, thanked me for coming to the aid of that man. And one gentleman said, I'm quoting, I'm so thankful that you knew what to do. Could you tell me where I can learn to do what you did? I want to be prepared in case there's an emergency like that as well. The choking man's wife left a note for me with a cashier that said, thank you. My husband is too embarrassed and weak to say anything, but we're so thankful that you are not afraid to help us. Here's how the man closes the story. No one could have been more afraid than I was. It wasn't absence of fear that made the difference that day. The difference was I was prepared and ready to act. This experience taught me that someday I might be the only hope for someone whose life hangs in the balance. Now listen to that last statement. This experience taught me that someday I might be the only hope for someone whose life hangs in the balance. Now it's one thing to know how to expel a piece of meat from a man's throat. It's a, quite another thing to know how to help people experience a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And knowing Jesus and knowing how to make Jesus known to others can enable you to be a tool in God's hand to save someone's spiritual life. I want to say that again. Knowing Jesus and knowing how to make Jesus known to others can enable you to be a tool in God's hand to save someone's spiritual life. Over the last two or three weeks, and if you're a guest of ours today, you're getting in on the tail end of this, we've been in a little series called RSVP. And at one time or another, all of us have kind of gotten into that that, that series, we've kind of, you know, we, we, we've gotten, uh, we've gotten uh, uh, an invitation. Somebody has sent us something with those big back blowed letters, R-S-V-P. And all R-S-V-P is is simply, it's French, you probably know that, responde si vous play. It simply means, would you respond if you'd be willing to accept this invitation? And what we've been saying is, we've been talking about the importance uh, that God has given to all of us of involving ourselves in the lives of people and investing time in them to build relationships with them so that ultimately we can invite them. We can give them God's RSVP to go deeper with God and get close to God and to live for God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to use a word right now, and I want to prepare you before I use this word. Because I've learned and experienced there probably as much as any word that a pastor ever uses Outside of the word tithe, this word probably scares more people in the church than any other word. As a matter of fact, even more than tithe or more than give or more than money, it probably makes more people in the church more uncomfortable than any other word that a pastor uses. All right, so everybody take a deep breath. I want to give you this word. It's the word evangelism. Now, I want all of us to say that word together. You ready? One, two, three. Evangelism. All right, say it one more time. 
evangelism. Now, that didn't hurt, right? Nobody, nobody, nobody got hurt. Nobody you know, didn't take any money out of your wallet. Everybody's kind of good, all right? Evangelism. Now, the reason why that word frightens a lot of us and the reason why so many of us are so scared of that word is because when I use that word evangelism, for many of you, you get a picture in your mind. And that picture in your mind puts, kind of puts a knot in your gut. It puts sweat on your brow, begins to make your hand shake. It makes your blood pressure go up. Because when I talk about evangelism, here's the picture some of you get. You get this idea that you got to go door to door in, your, in every neighborhood in your, in, in, in your neighborhood where you live, and you got to knock on that door, cold turkey, and when somebody opens that door, you look at them with a smile on your face and say, turn or burn. That's what you think. Or you think that evangelism is when you go up to a perfect stranger in a parking lot you've never met and simply ask a very innocent question, are you going to hell? And you get all kinds of these pictures in your mind. And, and I want to disabuse you of all those pictures. I want you to get all those pictures out of your mind. That is not what evangelism is. And I'm going to give you a definition of evangelism. And if you will accept this definition, and it's really a biblical definition, you're going to change your whole perspective of evangelism. And from now on, whenever you hear the word evangelism, you're not going to get scared. You're not going to get a knot in your gut. You're not going to think what you shouldn't think. You're not going to do what you shouldn't do. And I'm going to tell you why you can do evangelism and how you can do evangelism. All right, so you might, I want to put this up on the screen. Leave it for a moment. You might want to write this down. Evangelism is simply the process. Now, let me just stop right there. Did you see what I said about evangelism? It's not something you do just at a point in time. It's a process. It is the process of moving people. That's all you're doing. You're just moving people far from God to a point where they are open to hearing your story of how Christ has changed your life and how he can change theirs as well. I'm going to say that again. Read it slowly. Evangelism is simply the process of moving people far from God. So they're on the spectrum. You know, here, here, here's where a believer is. Here's where an unbeliever is. And you've got people all along this spectrum. You've got people all the way over here. You've got people in the middle. You've got people very close. All evangelism is is simply using your influence, using your ability just to communicate in love and in gentleness to move that person down that spectrum to a point where they're willing to hear your story of how Christ changed your life and how Christ can change theirs as well. Now, I want to ask you a question, and this is one of those times that please speak up. Is there anything that I just read that you can't do? Right, you're getting a chance to vote right now because if everybody says no, we're going to have a benediction. We're going home because you can't. There's nothing I read in that statement that you can't do. Everybody can move people down a track. Everybody can move people along. Every, for example, let me give you if somebody's lost and they don't know where to go. And they come up to you and they say, I'm looking for such and such a place. And all you do is tell them how to get there. What have you done? You've not forced anything on them. You've not coerced them. You've not pushed them. You've not pressured them. It's simply a matter of they're lost. They don't know where to go. They know where they need to go and where they want to go. And you simply tell them how to get there. That's what evangelism is. That's all that it is. So everybody can do it. Now, here's the other reason why this is so important. Do you know what God's greatest tool is to reach people for Jesus Christ? Can anybody guess what God's greatest tool is? You. You are God's greatest tool to reach people for Jesus Christ. Buildings don't reach people for Jesus Christ. 
Locations don't reach people for Jesus Christ. Really, in the grand scheme of things, ultimately, even sermons by themselves do not reach people for Jesus Christ. Ultimately, people reach people for Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, listen to this. You ready? 85%, almost 9 out of 10, 85% of new believers come to faith in Jesus Christ through either a friend or a member of their family. Say that again. 85% of people who come to faith in Jesus Christ come as a result of the influence either of a friend or a family member. Now, you're sitting there and you're saying, all this sounds good so far. Pastor, I, I don't have a clue on how to do what you asked me to do. I don't have a clue on how to move people down the line. I don't have a clue on really how to do this evangelism you're talking about. Well, I've got some good news for you. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ and you have a personal relationship with him, you have in your arsenal, you have everywhere you go, the single most powerful tool, the greatest tool, the most effective tool to bring people who are far from God into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's what that tool is. That tool is your story. You ready for this? If you really are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a story. Everybody has a story. Now, here's what I want you to take away from this message. God wants, you, wants to take you and your story to reach people who are far from God with the hope of bringing them into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to take out the door. God wants to take you and your story to reach people who are far from God with the hope of bringing them into a personal relationship with Christ. Every one of you in this room who is a follower of Christ, you claim to know Christ, you claim to have a relationship with Christ, every one of you has a story. And all I'm going to do today is take a passage right out of the Bible and show you a practical example of how to share your story. Because every story, this is the beautiful thing about your story. Your story may not be like my story in the sense of the content of that story, but in terms of the components of that story, every story is exactly the same. Because every story ultimately has the same three components. I'm going to share those with you today. We see it in Acts chapter 26. Now, let me give you the background of the story. Paul is standing before a king by the name of Agrippa, and he takes this incredible opportunity to do one simple thing with King Agrippa. He's going to share the story of how he came to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And even though, again, every story has the same components, I realize every story will be different. My story will be different from your story. Your story will be different from someone else's. Some people's story are more dramatic. Some are less dramatic. Some are longer. Some are shorter. Some, got, some have, have, have more amazement. Some have less amazement. But they all have the same components. And here's what I want you to understand. God uses all kinds of different stories to reach people. So my story doesn't have to sound like yours. And your story doesn't have to sound like mine. All God wants you to do is simply learn how to share your story. So what is in a story, and how do you share that story? I want you to jot down these three things this morning. Ready? First, first part of your story. Here's step number one. All you need to do is recount your life before Christ. That's all you got to do. What was your life like before you met Jesus Christ? Because there's one thing I know that's true of every one of you in this room who, who says you're a believer. You, you, you say you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's one thing I know. I can divide your life chronologically up into two different time zones, B.C., A.D. All right, now let's see how smart you are this morning. B.C. means what? Before Christ. A.D. means what? After Christ. 
every one of you, you have a life that can divide, be divided up into two parts. There was a time you didn't know Christ. There was a time you came to know Christ. There was your life before Christ. There was your life after Christ. Now, Paul begins by telling his story to King Agrippa. He simply starts talking B.C. All right, King Agrippa, this is my life before Christ. Now, we're in Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently, my manner of life from my youth. Let me stop right there. He's going all the way back to his life B.C. He's just simply talking about, let me tell you what my life was like before I met Jesus Christ. My manner of life among my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strict, strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, I have to be very honest at this point because I can really relate to Paul's story. I mean, his story really is a lot like mine. Because what Paul is saying is, I want you to know, King Agrippa, before I met Jesus Christ, I was a very religious person. I, I, I believed in God. I, I attended church. I, I went to Bible school. I, I, I went to quote-unquote Sunday school. I, I, I mean, I, I knew all about religious traditions and, 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 and religious rituals. He said, I was a Hebrew by birth. In other words, that means he grew up going to the synagogue. But he said, I wasn't just an ordinary churchgoer. Man, I was a Pharisee. Now, that was a big deal. To put it in today's vernacular, what he was saying was, King Agrippa, before I met Jesus, I didn't just go to church. I, I, I led a small group. I, I sang in the choir. I, I served on the finance ministry team. I helped to write the bylaws of the church. I was considered a religious leader. I was an ordained deacon. I, I was really, I mean, I was a big cog in the synagogue. And, and he says, I, I was a part of the upper echelons of religious leadership because to be a Pharisee, you had to be an expert in the Old Testament law. And what he said was, I knew the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I knew them like the back of my hand. So whether it was his diet or his dress or his demeanor, he said, I was meticulously, painstakingly religious. Now, what's really interesting to read, because this kind of relates to where we are in the 21st century, it was his religion that drove him to persecute the Christian church. Listen to verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only looked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was the star of the number one television show in Israel, Israel's Most Wanted. I mean, he had made it his full-time mission and passion in life. He said, I am going to hunt down everybody and anybody that believes in Jesus Christ. I'm going to shut down every church I can find. I'm going to water down. I'm going to extinguish this fire called Christianity. It was open season on anybody who was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he hunted them down like dogs. And here's the amazing thing. Are you ready? He said, I even thought I was doing God's work. 
I thought I was in the will of God. I thought that's what God wanted me to do. And that, that just leads me to say something kind of parenthetically. Even though it saddens us, it really should not surprise us that here we are 2,000 years later, and guess what? It's still open season on Christians. It's still open season on the church. There are people in the world today, we've got brothers and sisters around the world today in different countries being hunted down for their faith by people who think they're doing the will of God. They think this is what God's called them to do, to stamp out Christianity. And it should not surprise us that in some ways, the more we love Jesus, the more we'll, the world will hate us. That really should not surprise us. Now, there's something even more personal going on here. Paul is a picture of every one of us when we were born into this world. You say, what do you mean? All right, listen carefully. This is important. Paul was not born a believer in Jesus Christ. He had to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you where some of you need to perk up your ears and listen. No one is born a Christian. I, I talk to people so many times, and I'll say something like this. Um, have you ever come to a place in your life where you know for sure if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? And they'll say, oh, oh, yes, uh, I, I have. And I'll say, oh, really? And I'll say, okay, so when did you become a believer in Jesus Christ? And you, I hear this so many times. You know what they'll say? Oh, I've always believed in Jesus Christ. Well, no, not always. Oh, I've always known Jesus. I've been a, or here's one. I've been a Christian all my life. Now, when somebody tells me they've been a Christian all their life, it makes me think they've never been a Christian because nobody's been a Christian all of their life. You're not born a Christian. Jesus said you must be born again to become a Christian. The first birth gets you onto earth. Or into, uh, onto earth. The second birth gets you into heaven. It's the first birth that puts you in an earthly family. It's the second birth that puts you into an eternal family. And if you're still not getting my drift, let me go back and tell you something that Jesus said that we kind of don't pay a lot of attention to, but it's a pretty, pretty kind of a, you know, get your attention kind of a statement. Jesus was talking to the disciples one time, and here's what he said. Whoever is not with me is against me. Now, here's the cold, hard truth. Everybody in this room was born against Jesus. No, you may not have persecuted Christians. You, you may not have uh, shut down churches. You may not have ever shown any outward hostility toward believers. You may even sit there and say, wait a minute, I wasn't born against Jesus. Are you kidding me? I, I grew up going to church. I grew up singing Christmas carols. I grew up celebrating Christmas and Easter. I wasn't born. I was devout. I, I went to church. Well, Paul had to realize what you need to realize, which is being born into religious family or, or, or raised in a church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus Christ any more than, than being born in a garage would make you an automobile. It has nothing to do with it. And by the way, you may sit there and you may say, well, Pastor, my testimony is totally different from Paul. I didn't grow up in church. Matter of fact, I grew up in hostility toward the church. I grew up not liking church. You may sit there and you say, man, I, I, I grew up an atheist. I, I came out of, a, 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 out of unbelief. Or you may be sitting there and saying, man, before I met Christ, uh, I was a drug addict. Or, 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 or I was hooked on pornography, or I was deep in, in, in alcoholism, or I, I, I lived in sexual sin. I mean, you, you, that, that may be your testimony, but there's one thing we all had in common before we met Christ, and that is our life was against Him. No, you may not spit on crucifixes, you may not ridicule the church, you may not believe in persecuting Christians, but let me tell you this, listen carefully. 
If you're sitting here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you have never surrendered your life to Christ. I'm not talking about believing in Him in, in Jesus with your head. I'm talking about having a personal, real, vibrant relationship with Christ in your heart. You are just as condemned. You are just as lost. You, as ju you are just as much against Jesus Christ as a Muslim terrorist. You sit there and you say, prove it. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here's my question. Now, here's what I would like to ask every one of you in this room right now. If you and I were having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, and I was teaching you one-on-one -on -one how to share your story, I'd simply ask you this question. All right, tell me about your life before Christ. How would you describe your life before Christ. Now, again, my story is very similar to Paul's. If you were to ask me, well, Pastor, tell me about your story before Christ, I'll tell you, I was religious, but I was lost. I attended the house of God, but I was far from the God of the house. I believed in God, but I didn't know God. I knew a lot about Jesus, but I did not know Jesus. That was my life before Christ. You can be religious and lost. You can be irreligious and lost. You can believe in God and be lost. You cannot believe in God and be lost. The question is, what was your life before Christ? That's step one of your story. So you just simply recount your life before Christ. All right, and here's step two. You recall how you came to faith in Christ. Step one, you recall your life before Christ. Step two, you recall how you came to faith in Christ. Now, I think you and I would both agree there have been a lot of remarkable conversions in 